Welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Good morning. It is good to see you all this morning. Uh, it's great to be with you. Uh, I saw many of you Friday night. We had a great time over at uh, Crystal Park in Mount Vernon and got to watch concert together and eat. It's been a good weekend. Um, let me pray for us as we begin and we dig into God's Word this morning together and get into the book of Hebrews. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock. And my Redeemer. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I remember a long time ago, back in college, having a conversation with a friend of mine uh, who was trying to balance a lot. And maybe some of you can resonate with the idea of balancing a lot. Um, they were married, they were finishing a degree, they were raising children, they were trying to hold down a job while doing all these things. Then they ended up losing their job while they were in school. And so they had to cut down on the coursework to be able to afford school. And that inevitably prolonged their schooling. And that made their spouse frustrated. And they wondered if they were ever going to finish school before their kids got into college. And uh, now eventually, that person who was trying to balance all these things did find a job again. And when they found that job, it allowed them to take more classes uh, than they were currently taking. And even though it did take a little longer than they were expecting, they did finish school before the kids were in college. And that stressor was taken out of their marriage um, of finishing school. Having that one key thing for them fall into place, it didn't make life easy, but it did make things work properly. It just took that one little thing, some financial stream of income, to make that thing work properly. And, and sometimes we just need the right thing to fall into place to make things work right. Now imagine for each person in the room, they're thinking of a different thing, but we just need the right thing to fall into place sometimes. Not to make life easier, but to make things work properly. And in our passage in Hebrews today, this is the very last chapter of Hebrews, we hear this reminder of what makes a healthy and formative church. What makes a healthy community? What has to fall into place? in order for that to happen. And the answer in this passage is, it's Jesus. Jesus, who's the Word of God, who was the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when Jesus is in the right place, for all of us, for the church, things fall into place. It doesn't mean things get easier for each person in the church or the church collectively, but it does mean that things grow properly. Everything has its right place in the church. And and so when Jesus is in the right place in his church, the community of faith, what it does, it becomes a place of familial love. You heard it earlier with keep brotherly love. It becomes a place of familial love, which is shown through hospitality, through compassion, and through contentment. So three ways that brotherly love happens when Jesus is in his right place, hospitality, compassion, contentment. So this vision of Christian community is laid out as this vision of love 
that stems from a right view of who Jesus is. And it speaks, I think, to how we treat strangers. It speaks to how we treat those who suffer. It also speaks to commitment and trust in one another. So the first thing he does is he addresses love and hospitality. And the church here is being addressed uh, in, the, in this letter. The church being addressed seems to be doing two things really well. The two things that it's doing well, he says, he says um, let brotherly love remain and do not forsake hospitality. So it's not that he's trying to tell them to start something that they're not already doing. Um, but to keep doing the thing that they're already doing. Because it's easy to forget those things. Familial love requires vulnerability constantly. It requires frequency with one another. Um, and that can be really challenging if we're guarded by our very nature. Or if we've had something happen to us, a bad experience, or been burned by a particular relationship. And if you have places like that, you might be sitting here this morning and your hands are getting a little clammy. And you might feel like you're squirming a little bit. Like, are you asking me to you know, divulge my deepest secrets to another person in this room? And so you can take a deep breath. The answer is no, not right now. Uh, take a deep breath. Uh, I am, I'm not asking that, but I'm inviting us to get to know one another. And, and that does require frequency. It requires vulnerability. It requires trust, which just takes time. Um, it, it's, it would be immature to trust somebody fully when you've just met them. So that takes time. Having that kind of familial love with each other gives us the confidence that you and I need and the compassion that we need to have hard conversations when we need to have them uh, when things get really difficult. And what it says is, you belong here. Like, I believe that I belong here. And so you and I need to assume the best of one another, and we actually need to seek the best for one another. But that takes familial, brotherly love. And that kind of love connects well to hospitality, which is this, when, when a deep knowledge of Jesus is central to who we are, we can do that, that deep work of familial love with one another, and we can, we can also do the hard work of what feels like welcoming what feels other into the community of faith. Now, that's the nature of hospitality, the lexenia, the love of strangers, bringing what feels strange or unwelcome and welcoming it in. Some years ago, I had visited a church in another tradition, and seeing that I was new, this man came up and he sat next to me and he said, I'm going to sit next to you to help you find your way. It felt very spiritual. Uh, and inevitably, I did get lost during the service as we were moving from one book to another, to a prayer card, back to a book. Uh, you know, they didn't have a keynote like we have. And so he was really there helping me participate as he was participating as well. And then after the service, uh, he took me and he said, you know, come with me. And there was a meal after the service and he introduced me to a few people to talk with so that I would actually be able to feel like I was part of the community and have conversations. I don't know how intentional he was being about it. That might have just been who he was. There's also a Middle Eastern congregation, so hospitality is just kind of there. Um, but it was very moving to me. And, and it made me feel like I had been coming to that church for a long, long time. And that was the effect of his hospitality. Sometimes hospitality is just saying, hey, can I come sit alongside you as you make your way through this. 
And you can extrapolate that to the, the broader relationships that we have. And it's bringing other people into the potential web of relationships that exist within the context of the church community. And so when someone is new, um, when someone is by themselves, I would encourage us to, to think about hospitality and remember what it feels like to walk into a space, not to know anybody, or to be standing there with nobody to talk with. Um, and, and so, you know, take time to go to that person, to have a conversation, introduce yourself to them, and then introduce them to another person so that they can have conversations with other people. And those are organic things to do. It's how relationships form. I would, I would love it if no one felt like a stranger in the household of God when they came here. Uh, I want no one to feel like a stranger in the household of God. I want to know you. I want to pray for you. And I want each of you to have a sense that you are known and loved and cared for in this community. Which is why I probably am going to invite myself to your house for dinner. Uh, you're warned. Um, Many of you are already really good at this, and so keep on doing it. Just like this community, it's like they weren't doing it. You guys do this well, and so keep on doing it. Don't let that slip. Don't forsake hospitality. Keep it up. And, and so even if it's just you know, finding someone new and saying, hey, you have lunch plans after the service? Let's go grab an early lunch over at Botanitas or El Paso. I mean, whatever it is. We're called others to help others as much as is possible for us. To help them belong to the household of God. Which is more than just showing up. There's a relational aspect to this. So we're called to help them belong. In this vision of Christian community outlined in the book of Hebrews, the writer lays out exhortations about love and hospitality. And love sort of undergirds, brotherly love undergirds all these. Um, He also lays out exhortations for compassion and contentment. These are in verses 5 and 6. And he tells them, um, and and in verse 3, he tells them to remember those who are bound in prison as though they're bound with them because all of us have frail bodies. And so the writer's exhortation is to remember those who are imprisoned as though you and I are imprisoned with them. That's not, and that is part of familial love. And I don't know anybody who's bound in prison for their faith. Maybe some of you do. There are, definitely are in other countries, but it's, it's broader than this. And one writer says, a capacity for putting oneself in another's place and exercising imaginative sympathy is part of true charity. I like that phrase. Imaginative sympathy. Imaginative sympathy. Whether or not we're talking specifically about persecution or whether um, something else, part of familial love is entering into imaginative sympathy to show true love to somebody else. I remember a situation when somebody in the church had been really upset uh, with a pastor friend of mine about a decision that this pastor had made for that church. And as somebody who was struggling with people-pleasing, that that pastor was really uh, taking it to heart. It was really painful for them to carry that, that disagreement in their soul, and it took all of God's grace for them not to get defensive uh, with that parishioner. And rather than trying to solve the problems over email or text, which never works, um, that pastor came and they sat in the house of that person and they cried together. There were a lot of tears in that conversation. And what that pastor hadn't understood uh, that they told me was that the ministry decision that 
they had made had brought to the surface all kinds of insecurities that that parishioner was holding on to that came to light. That all the things that they were feeling about not not feeling like they were a part of the church and some other inner frustrations that they'd been holding on to because of that decision they all came to the surface. And at the end of that conversation, what that pastor had realized was that parts of that decision weren't wise. Like he didn't actually think through some pieces of it. Um, and some of the pieces he did think through didn't get framed well. So that person didn't feel invited into it. And so he listened and he tried to understand. And then at the end, he was able to offer a sincere apology to that person for all the things that had impacted them negatively with that ministry decision. And the good news is they actually did reconcile these people uh, and are part of the same church. And uh, and so they're friends. And so this is a good thing, but not every story is going to end that well. But what he learned in that situation is that there was something behind the outward frustrations that that person was sharing with them. And there's always a thing underneath the thing. There's always a thing behind the thing. And part of having compassion and an imaginative sympathy is to listen well enough to get to that thing that's behind the thing. And so we should cultivate this imaginative sympathy that he's talking about. Familial love, as we've seen, is continuing hospitality. It involves compassion. And then the last thing that he talks about is contentment in two areas. In in, um, marital union and contentment in uh, money. And so when we talk about contentment here, in the, in the first part of marriage, he says, let marriage be held in honor among all. And our Book of Common Prayer maintains that marriage is a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman binding both to self-giving love and exclusive fidelity. God's ordained that union, as our liturgy for marriage tells us, for the procreation of children and their nurture and the knowledge and love of the Lord, for mutual joy, for the help and the comfort given to one another in prosperity and adversity. To maintain purity so that husbands and wives with all the households of God might serve as holy and undefiled members of the body of Christ. And for the upbuilding of Christ's kingdom and family, church, and society to praise his holy name. So marriage is a good institution, one that's ordained by God. He's designed it for the good of the church and the good of society. And I also want to put a caveat. If you're not married, you are still a whole person. Right? Um, so don't hear me saying that marriage is actually the ideal to live up to. It's not. And in any given congregation, there are going to be people who are single, divorced, widowed, dating, engaged, um, those who are living out consecrated celibacy. Um, there are more options than that. I'm not being comprehensive, but you get the idea that these are all good. And, and these are all stations of life by which somebody can live out a full life with Christ. You're not lacking anything by not being married, uh, but and especially if you're not called to be married, right? And so, in the church, we need to find more ways to create avenues that create intentional friendships for those who are choosing to remain celibate. If anybody has a heart for that and really wants to give thought to that, I would love to give thought to that. And so, if you want to let me know over email or text me, I would love to talk about that with you. St. Paul's language is interesting elsewhere, um, not in the book of Hebrews, but when you read St. Paul's language, it almost sounds like 
uh, celibacy is preferable to marriage. You can you can sort of read it that way. I'm not sure that's what he believes, but it sounds like it. Um, and that marriage is for people who can't live into that ideal of celibacy. And and that had been so understood throughout the church's history that in certain places in Christendom, uh, people chose to remain celibate after their baptism. And even when they were married. And so I don't think that was actually right to do. Um, that misunderstands marriage. But but it's what they did. And it shows you the value that the early church had on the language as they were reading St. Paul. And I would imagine that um, this might have been the case for the community here in the book of Hebrews. Um, first, because he has to tell them to honor marriage. So first, those who are married... They need to live out purity in marriage and not let any foreign third party or lust or object of covetousness pollute the sanctity of the marriage bed. That's part of uh, familial love and community. They need to be content with what God has given them in the confines of their marital union. Second, he needed to remind the broader audience not to look down on those who are married as second class uh, people, second class Christians in the church. It's quite the opposite of what we experience now in most churches. But this was the case uh, for many centuries in the church. Our culture idealizes marriage, so we might have to give the opposite exhortation where we say, honor celibacy. Um, but that wasn't true in early stages of the church, where they idealized celibacy. And so you have this exhortation to honor marriage. Marriage is a good institution. It's an institution established by God, and it was for the welfare of the church and society. And yet there are real challenges within marriage because we are broken people and we hold on to our insecurities, our immaturities. We're broken. So holding marriage in honor in the church means that as a community, we support people in marriage. We support them in the challenges that marriage presents as much as we're able Brotherly love involves commitment, whether we're talking about contentment within our station of life, single or married, or whether we're talking about staying in the confines of marital union and loving union. Um, And the writer talks about contentment in marriage as one thing. He then goes on to talk about contentment in another area, which is money. And, And the reason why contentment is so important is because you can think of its opposite. What's the opposite of Contentment. It's covetousness. It's let me look at this thing that I want to have that I don't yet and wonder what I'm missing by not having it. Covetousness is this festering of anxiety in us that wonders if there's just something better out there, you know. And that could happen in a lot of areas. Here he talks about it in the context of marriage and in the context of money. And then when that anxiety becomes larger and larger, what it does is it keeps us from seeing the goodness of God in his provision for us um, and in his goodness to us. Money is a great tool. Uh, Money is a tool, and it's not the thing that we want to love. Money is not something to love. It's a tool. And as you think about the ways for yourself that you want to see God's kingdom come in your life, the ways that you follow Jesus and that you make him known, Think about several areas. How does your car, how does your house, how does your garden, how does your dinner table, how does your front porch support the ways that I want to see God's kingdom come uh, in my life as it is in heaven? 
Um, and I think when I do house blessings for people, I love house blessings because they remind us of, of that very thing. How do your waking hours, how do your sleeping hours support kingdom life and kingdom values? Um, the decisions that you make around everything somehow involve money. Every decision you make involves money. Um, some are going to make vocational choices for the sake of the kingdom. Some are going to make like landscaping decisions for the sake of the kingdom. I was reminded of our old house, and you know I had spent money on making a grass and, and buying pavers and tools necessary to strip out part of the lawn, to build a patio, um, so that we could actually host people and have conversations outside in our front yard. There are a lot of spheres of our lives to think through in that regard. And um, there's no way when we think through those things to avoid conversations about money. I mean, if you think about it, even Jesus had a treasurer, a money bag holder, and he had investors. It talks about some of the women who followed him funded his ministry. And so Jesus was not exempt from this either. And so notice, though, that money is a tool for the thing that we should love. It is not the thing that we should love. And it's the tool which... Um, which builds up God's kingdom and his bride, the church. It's a tool. So, in this passage, I know it's kind of a lot. This is one of those passages where after a huge vision of Jesus, the writer is giving us a lot of ethical implications about community. And so, um, you you could have had almost four sermons in this, but we're thinking with the writer about the ethical implications for Christian community based on a vision of Jesus. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, he, when he's at the center of all that you and I do, we can build a community that really exudes familial love, what he calls brotherly love in this passage. And the love that is being expressed there comes out in hospitality and welcoming what feels strange or other, um, and it welcomes it to taste of the love of God. And it, it shows a creative kind of sympathy in understanding the journey of our brothers and sisters through this life. It cultivates contentment in all of the areas and responsibilities, the relationships, and the roles that you and I steward in our lives as followers of Jesus. And as Jesus is put in his proper place, familial love is maintained, um, and everything else starts to fall into place. As Jesus is in his proper place, everything else falls into place. And having that one thing fall into place does not make life in the church easier, um, but it does make things work properly. And so it still might be, as Eugene Peterson calls it, a long obedience in the same direction, but it is heading somewhere good. And so let's maintain familial love, hospitality, compassion, and contentment based on the person and the work of Jesus, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let me pray for us. Oh God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our only Savior, the Prince of Peace, give us grace to take to heart in the grave dangers that we're in through our many divisions. Deliver your church from all enmity and prejudice and everything that hinders us from godly union. As there's one body and one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, So make us all to be of one heart and one mind, united in one holy bond of truth and peace, of faith and love, 
that with one voice we may give you praise. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, in glory everlasting. Amen.